Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. What always surprises me is a board who hires new director, what systems are in place to support the success of that person in that job? And I don't know what those things are, but I would hope that they are there because I'm concerned when I hear that people have been in a job for a year and a half and then leave. That's art historian Dr. Elizabeth Easton. She earned her PhD at Yale University and joined the Brooklyn Museum in 1988 as assistant curator, becoming chair of the Department of European Painting and Sculpture in 1999. Since 2007, she's been the director of the Center for Curatorial Leadership, or CCL, a nonprofit organization she co-founded with philanthropist Agnes Gund to train museum curators in the fundamentals of management and leadership. Its five-month fellowship program has trained over 120 curators serving at museums across the world to develop key skills in formulating and advancing a museum's mission via technology initiatives, fundraising campaigns, and audience development. The goal of the program is to prepare these curators to further the role of art in shaping culture and public discourse. Welcome, Buffy. Thanks for joining the conversation. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks, Max. Buffy, so much has changed over the five months since the pandemic descended. And why don't we start by finding out what's changed in the programs of the center you run? I'm so glad you asked that question because, of course, all of my programs have been postponed or put online, but it enabled me to do something I've never been able to do. I run three programs. One as you know, the core program for curators, which is a four-week over six-month leadership program, one for PhD students that takes place in July, and one, a global program I partner with the Museum of Modern Art on for curators from around the world. And the one thing I was never able to do for the now 296 alumni of all three programs was do anything with the alumni. I, we just never had the time to focus on them. But Zoom is the great equal opportunity medium. And we started, because of the crisis, having conversations with people who deal with crises. All of a sudden, 200 people from around the world would be on these calls. And it brought our community together in a way that we had never thought to do before. And I think for the young people who are entering the field, they felt very encouraged by being part of a community of more senior people who spoke very frankly about their challenges right now, but also gave a sense of togetherness for everybody. So that has been a revelation and something of unbelievable success. So from that, a group of people who have since become directors wanted separate meetings. We've done our PhD program completely on Zoom and it worked incredibly well. And one thing we did is we accepted 14 applicants for our CCL Mellon Foundation Seminar in Curatorial Practice, which is meant to encourage PhD students to think about museum careers, because traditional art history departments at universities don't do that. But we allowed all applicants 
to participate in a large number of calls that we had in the program. And that was fantastic. And these poor PhD students, not one of them was where they were intended to be right now. And their job prospects are, you know, a little bit concerning. And this was like the light of their life in the past five months. So they wrote incredibly heartfelt letters. And so actually, I'm happy you asked because we've never been busier. And I feel that the contribution has been really great. And that is a familiar refrain from all sorts of disciplines around the world that people are connecting freshly in new ways in some very positive ways through Zoom and Google Meet and the like. But art museums are facing an existential challenge, which is how to prepare for reopening and how to reopen. So what are you telling the curators you work with about that challenge? Museums closed essentially in 24 hours all around the world. Something that would have been inconceivable. I mean, I think you probably acknowledge too, museums are flow-moving organizations. And yet in one day around the world, every museum essentially closed. Now the reopening is taking a very long time, but I think people have their strategies. They're sharing information. I'm really not that involved in the details because I think people are handling it very well. And in fact, as you know, Gary Tintero was the first person to open a big museum in this country. And he had a session with all of our alumni about that and shared all of his all staff memos and everything. So I think that gave people at smaller institutions a concrete guide to help them. But that's just the technical stuff. That's way beyond my capacity to opine about. But the deeper sense of saying, you know, the museum you left in March is not the one you're returning to, I think goes way beyond the financial challenges that museums are facing that we hear a lot about. But to a whole different set of voices that are being heard, demanding to be heard. And that's a profound change and something that will, you know, challenge museums to really listen to their staffs. It's not just external critiques, but a really activated energy from within, often from younger staff members, but not necessarily exclusively at all. For greater equity. And that, I think, is very profound. So there's really a conflation of two challenges. One, the pandemic, with all of the choices around trying to assure the health of visitors, staff, volunteers in a building that's freshly reopened. And second, the challenges attendant to a social responsibility to which many museums have recently awakened that has to do with equity and inclusion in the face of the scourge of police violence and all of the other forms of discrimination rampant in American society. So what are you hearing from curators and what are you telling curators about these twin challenges? Well, of course, is it a coincidence that they've happened at the same time? In the best of all possible worlds, I would like to say this too presents a tremendous opportunity an opportunity to really think staffing, recruitment, the racial equity at all levels of the museum, from the board 
to the youngest staff members and to recalibrate. But I don't hear about any conclusions about that, but I think everybody is focused on it. And I think it's fantastic that people within the museum, I mean, you've run a variety of museums. I think the sense that new voices are demanding to be heard, a lot of what they say is heartrending and very moving. And I, I read stuff and feel its truth. And I think this will compel change to happen faster and better than it would have happened without all this. What do you, what do you think? So much of what awaits us on the reopening of these institutions is the degree to which the voices of protest will land permanently in how directors, administrators, curators, and boards think about their responsibilities. And it's not clear to me today that museums are equipped to handle that change and make it stick. And I think there has to be a fundamental reimagining of how institutions function and how they conceive of their role in society. Max, I think it's questioning museum missions. I think the founding documents of museums need to be re-examined. You know, I think a museum, as you know, that works well, means that everybody who works there understands the mission and feels that they are a critical part of delivering it. I mean, when you see a museum that hums, basically that's what everybody on the staff understands the same way. Whether they're, they're working in the cafeteria, the gift shop, or being the director or the chairman of the board. And this fracturing from within will cause a healthy reexamination of missions and even founding documents in museums. And I think, look, that's unexpected, but I think compels this moment to do something that's very important. And for the people who embrace it will be a great thing. Contemporary art museums are uniquely equipped to approach social issues on the fly and turn to artists to help them represent concerns that have a demand by the public, a demand by the staff to be heard. Encyclopedic museums, Buffy, have a slightly or significantly different challenge, which is they carry around with them the legacy of 5,000 years of art history that doesn't change simply because the world around us has. And yet, the movement towards decolonization, the efforts to recontextualize works of art, was upon us before George Floyd's murder. Now, what will encyclopedic museums be obligated to do in rethinking their role in a reimagined museum setting? In my PhD program, we have many people who study, even many who study art of the ancient world, your topic of expertise, and all different disciplines. And that's important for the contemporary scholars to know about. But contemporary scholars getting a PhD, they're already deeply rooted in scholarship in a way. Often contemporary arts institutions tend to move quicker And as you say, it's a different thing. But I tell all the students, they better know about contemporary art because the work they do will be better informed by knowing the art of today. But at the same time, Max, and this is something, I don't know if you know the scholar, I had a PhD student from Yale 
who was doing Greek pots and performance. And she was looking at the scenes on Greek pots from really interesting point of view. And I think she did a show at Yale on the sound of the actions of the music that was performed on Greek pots. Anyway, this is a way that only an encyclopedic museum can engage the contemporary world in a different way. And I don't think that encyclopedic museums need to change and only be about views of history through a contemporary lens. But I think it does contribute to their liveliness. I will say, and I'm sorry to talk so much about the PhDs, but they're such an interesting group of people thinking about the way scholars think today. So many of them are hybrids, like Greek pots and performance. You know, I did my dissertation on a 19th century French artist. That doesn't happen anymore. Scholars work on issues. They work on hybrid themes. How those people fit into structures of encyclopedic museums where departments are organized along geographic borders, along periods of time, along ethnic definitions. I think young scholars are not thinking that way at all. And it might provide an opportunity. I mean, I hope it does. If there's a shakeup in those silos, what are traditionally termed the silos of museums, I think it will help encyclopedic museums enliven their historical collections in heretofore unseen ways. At least I think that would be great. So let's back up. I think it would be great to hear about your training as an art historian, your distinguished record of art scholarship and curating. Could you share a bit about your career before starting CCL? So I always wanted to be a museum curator. I was lucky to, well, ever since college, I spent every summer interning at the first the Whitney Museum for actually going back, my first art history teacher was Alfred Barr's wife, Margaret Scolari Barr in high school, where she taught for 37 years, believe it or not, at the Spence School in New York. And she was just an incredible inspiration. And, you know, Joan Mertens, who was a colleague of yours many years ago, was, I think, the smartest person ever to graduate from my high school. But she studied with Miss Scolari as well. And she introduced me to Marsha Tucker, who at the time was a curator at the Whitney and then was fired and famously founded the new museum. And all my college summers were spent working with her at the beginning of the new museum. And then I felt that contemporary art was daunting for me and I'd be much more comfortable in an archive doing research. And so then I went and got a PhD at Yale on Edouard Vuillard, 19th century French painter, actually, who lived until 1940. So he really did spend more of his life in the 20th century. But I worked on his small interiors of the 1890s. And nobody would do a dissertation like that today. But I was very lucky to get my first job at the Brooklyn Museum, where I stayed for 18 years, ultimately as the chair of the Department of European Painting and Sculpture. And it was the time when I'm sure you remember too, I felt like the Monet machine. I mean, everybody was interested in 19th century French painting. Now, none of my PhD students study 19th century French painting. Maybe it will have a rebirth, but 
I think that's a real challenge, actually. Anyway, I was a very active curator there for 18 years. And at the same time, with a group of other people, was in at the founding of the Association of Art Museum Curators. And I became the first elected president of the organization and heard a lot of other voices beyond New York, beyond Brooklyn, beyond encyclopedic museums of the challenges curators faced around the country. And then there was an annual meeting that I had invited museum board chairs to speak to curators. And somebody said, you know, can curators become directors? And all the people on the panel, the board chairs of, you know, Cleveland, Boston, the Whitney, the Museum of Modern Art said, no, nobody interviews curators to become museum directors. And so that was the seed that was planted for the CCL, the Center for Curatorial Leadership, which is the organization that Agnes Gund and I then founded shortly thereafter. So behind the velvet curtain is how museums acquire new directors as opposed to works of art. Tell us a bit about how search firms work from your vantage point and how things might be improved. Well, I mean, it's interesting. First, I'd like to spend a moment talking about what kind of curator you know, comes into my program and advances. And I think as you were a curator who went on that journey, I think many curators feel that they want to take on a broader responsibility within the museum than their research field. And maybe they feel like they've done enough exhibitions or they're just interested in the larger operation of museums. And those are the people who kind of self-select to apply to the CCL. They are not yet on the radar of the headhunters and the search firms. And, you know, you're in this world, you know, what are their four big headhunters or maybe only three. And they have a stable of directors they know and they're hired by boards to fill the job. I mean, just yesterday, I talked to a trustee at a museum that's looking for a new director, having sort of pushed out the standing, the sitting director. And I thought, well, that's a really complicated conversation. And I think that search firms are really important in creating a safe space for these searches to take place because boards who want to do without them really struggle with issues of confidentiality. The headhunters, they're professionals. So I really encourage people to use those firms. But I talk to them a lot because I think they have their stable of people and an organization like the CCL gives them some new blood to go and tap. And so I invite the headhunters in to speak to the fellows and get to know them a little bit. And you can believe their eagle eyes go around the table (laughs) with great interest. And I've been at both sides of the picture, I guess, but I invented my own job. So happily didn't have to go through a big search (laughs) to be where I am now. So when you're counseling museum trustees about a search, what kind of advice do you give them not so much about the personalities of individual candidates, but about the field, something they need to know about the profession. Well, Max, I mean, this is something that I think about, and you would know better than I. 
because I've never been a museum director, but I think it's important to understand if the board knows what it wants and if they're all in the same place on that. And what always surprises me is a board who hires new director, what systems are in place to support the success of that person in that job? And I don't know what those things are, but I would hope that they are there because I'm concerned when I hear that people have been in a job for a year and a half and then leave. That's a very troubling thing. And I think it recently happened at one or two museums that I haven't been involved with the candidates, but I read the news and I just think, where is the support system? I'm sure you would agree that running a museum today is an incredibly difficult challenge. Certainly people who've newly taken on the job, my God, the pandemic, the financial implications, social unrest, these are issues that nobody was prepared for. And so I think it's a very hard job. I'm gonna launch a new program in the coming year, I hope. And I'm gonna pair the people in the program with trustees so that they really get advice from a different decision-making body than directors. And I hope that that really helps them have a network of support that's different. I would imagine that when a director is exited after a very short tenure by a board, it's because they think of her or him as a coach. And if there's a winning season, great. And if not, let's get another one. Well, it was hard enough before the pandemic and before an awakening of obligations to social and racial justice. But now their new director or their sitting director has a whole set of new challenges. So what is that board supposed to do in evaluating the success of their director and their institution in the next chapter facing museums? That's really a good question. Actually, of course, you were the one who invented the metrics of museum success. An article that, I mean, or a white paper that people still read. And what are the metrics going forward? I mean, I think what are the metrics by which people can understand staff satisfaction, where they internally feel that the museum is making changes? I mean, certainly papers that you read online are making a lot of demands. Big loan shows blockbusters, that is not going to happen for a while. Huge crowds, that's not going to happen for a while. But maybe visitor experience satisfaction will be huge with less crowded museums and more ability to have a profound and quiet experience in an art museum. But yeah, I don't know. I think if that is the question, I don't have the, I don't have the answer, but I think that is certainly the question. And I bet the trustees who are in business are thinking about that in terms of their own businesses as well. (sighs) This crisis is interesting in all the lectures that I've had for the alumni, where actually nobody knows the answer to anything. And so you just see everybody asking questions and trying to energize teams and staffs to think about things in new ways. You know, I have no answer for that. That is, the, that is the question of the moment, I think. I think there's a pair of issues that museums face, not only boards and staffs, but also just the general financial well-being of these institutions, because 
with diminished tourism and shrinking participation by virtue of health concerns, earned revenue has plummeted and is only going to start inching back. And then you have contributed revenue has been to some extent a function of the degree to which patrons feel engaged and visible and present. If there are no more galas, splashy exhibition openings, behind-the-scenes tours in close quarters, all of those reasons to contribute will be challenged. And so there's a pairing of economic realities facing museums that are not easily solved. And going back to a purely philanthropic model, which is how museums began in the 19th century, seems almost obligated, but also out of step with a public-facing institution. So how do you reconcile those two? Well, you know, it's interesting in the alumni conversations I've been having, two of my alumni who run institutions now, one in the South and one on Long Island, both have been decimated economically by this. I mean, completely decimated. They don't have the huge endowments to help at this moment. But both also, both women directors expressed, a I can't say relief, but an energy about going back to the founding when they were scrappy institutions, the one on Long Island, founded by artists, and they got tremendous energy that artists were reemerging in their energy for support, and their voices had been kind of quieted in the institutional inflation that has come over the last 80 years. A leaner, cleaner, more artist-driven institution is not a bad thing, and Maybe it will change the nature of the boards as well. And maybe institutions will be smaller and will be more connected to their communities as a result. I mean, maybe that's a dreaming statement to say, but I think things no doubt will look different in the years ahead. So we know cultural tourism and blockbusters are a thing of the past and possibly a thing of the more distant future, which leads museums to have to rethink what it is they're presenting and what their appeal is going to be like. What are your thoughts about that? I agree. And I also think people are longing more for the permanent collections than the big shows. You know, the treasures within that have been hidden from everybody for these months, the solace that looking at works of art brings to your soul. I think that there may be a really renewed interest in the part of the public in the richness of the holdings of institutions, and that wouldn't be a bad thing at all. The challenge will be faced differently by different size museums, the largest budgets, the mid-size, the small ones, the university ones. What are you hearing on that front? The first talk we had for the alumni was with Michael Kaiser, whom you probably know, who mm-hmm. is really a crisis manager. And he felt You know, the big museums will survive because they have endowments and the tiny ones manage to survive because they're just scrappy all the time anyway. But the mid-sized ones will suffer the most because they don't have the financial underpinnings that will allow them to continue. It's hard to know right now how people are doing unless the museums themselves are advertising how they're doing and what their challenges are. And I think for the most part, they're all being pretty quiet. You know, they say, I don't know, you'll know the number better than I. A third of the museums in America may cease to exist. That's what the American Alliance of Museums is forecasting. Yeah. 
I don't know how you feel about that. I'm just hoping that the ones who do survive, survive in a way that actually really is responsive to their communities and does consider issues of equity paramount in their staff structures, their programmatic structures, and their audience. I just think this is an important time in America, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how museums step up to the plate. And I think aspiring directors will be lucky to have your help in getting there. I hope so. (laughs) Buffy, thanks so much for making time today. It was great fun. Thanks, Max. Great to talk to you. We've been speaking today with Dr. Elizabeth Easton, co-founder and director of the Center for Curatorial Leadership. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.